Good morning again. As we continue to work our way through the book of Philippians, I'd ask that you turn again to chapter 3. This morning we'll be looking at verses 12 through 16. Um, That is on page 981 if you are looking at a pew Bible. I ask that you pay really close attention to what I am about to read. It's God's word. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and Straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of you who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that as we now open your word, as we now speak concerning your word, that you would graciously, by the enabling power of your spirit, open our eyes and our hearts and our minds so that we can grab hold of that which you have for us. Equip us through your word even now so that we can continue in the path that you have set for us, that is to grow in the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Would you do these things to the praise of your glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So thus far in chapter 3, we've heard the Apostle Paul provide an apologetic against those who would persuade the Philippians to pursue righteousness through fleshly means. Those who would counsel them to seek their assurance through the things they could accomplish through human effort. He warned them against those folks by reminding them of who they were and where their hope rested. He said, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We hear that in verse 3. Paul then in a mic drop moment then went on to share the, the comments or the contents, rather, of his human achievement with them, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisees, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Basically, in our vernacular, he was saying, I was a man among men, the best, a cut above the rest. Whatever they did, I did it better. Whoever they were, I was more. I believe as Paul was here this morning, he would say that during the time of those achievements, I was, as I accuse others of being, in Romans chapter 10, verses 2 through 3, there I wrote, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
But you know my story, he would say. The Lord got hold of me on the road to Damascus. By faith alone, he revealed himself to me. Through grace alone, he made me his own. And now in him alone is where I live, move, and have my being. And so it should not surprise us then, knowing what we know about Paul, to, to hear him say as he did in verse 7 through 11, that whatever gain he had, he counted as loss for the sake of Christ, because of the inestimable worth of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. The grace of God articulated through the work of Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit had caused him to become a new creation, or as he himself wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. At this point, I can imagine seeing someone standing up in the back of the room and asking the Apostle Paul, Sir Paul, I understand that you've been saved by faith alone, through grace alone and Christ alone. I understand that you've been reconciled to God, and by his grace you now, you're a new creation. You're now perfect in the areas. Are you, Paul, perfect in the areas you've highlighted? This morning, utilizing Paul's imagery of a race, we're going to see the answer to that question. And then through the prism of Paul's own commitment that he communicates here, we're going to hear the answers to the question in light of what Christ has done for us. How now should we live? And what should be our chief end? And so with those questions and all that's been stated thus far in mind, I'd like for us to look at this passage under three overarching headings, the prerequisites to setting the goal, setting and pursuing the goal, and Paul's appeal and acknowledgement. First, the prerequisite to setting the goal, that is how do we go about figuring out how to live this life that we've been given, the Christian life? Using Paul who said, follow me as I follow Christ as our template, I would submit to you that the first thing one has to do is have a proper assessment of their own condition. In verse 12, Paul says two things concerning something that he wants or is seeking. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect and I press on to make it my own. In verse 13, he says, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but I'm straining towards to what lies ahead. And in verse 14, he says, I press on for the prize. Beloved, I submit to you that the prize that he is speaking of in verse 14 is the this and the it of verse 12 and is the it and the what of verse 13. Thankfully, the Spirit of God has not left us on our own to figure this stuff out, to figure out what Paul is referring to here. For in verse 8, we hear Paul saying, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. So that this in our passage is first, knowing Christ. 
Paul is also referring to what we find in verses 10 and 11. There he writes, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The this then is also the power of his resurrection, which involves what we know as resurrection power. Now it's instructive to know that there are two phases to this resurrection power. First, at conversion, we experience the power of a spiritual resurrection. We're given a new life. A new spiritual awareness characterizes this new life we have in Christ. Prior to this, prior to that spiritual resurrection, we are dead in our sins, dead to the things of God, who as 1 Corinthians 2.14 puts it, the natural person does not accept the things of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So this powerful, spirit-filled life begins at conversion. Successively and progressively, we experience changes in the way we think, speak, and act. That's why we can be counseled not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. No sit, no stand in the way of the sin or a seat in the seat of the scornful. But we are to meditate on God's word day and night. We know this is the process of sanctification wherein our Lord through the enabling power of his spirit, is molding and shaping us into his image. And again, this transformation is not, it's unlike our justification, it does not happen all at once. It finds its end, however, in the second phase of resurrection power, our resurrection from the dead, which will occur at the time of our Lord's return. It is then and only then that we will know Christ the way he knows us. Listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. This is from the New Living Translation. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely just as God knows me completely. Paul understood this prerequisite information. That is information that is central to the development of a mature Christian mind. Paul understood, as you should, that he was a new creation, a new creature with a new heart, that he was united to Christ. He had right standing with God and was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He knew that God had promised never to leave him or forsake him. But in the midst of that knowledge, he also understood that he was still subject to temptation, that he still had a fallen and unredeemed flesh, and he was still a sinner desperately in need of God's grace. He was not perfect, and he knew that fact. We are not perfect, and we should know and understand that fact. Many of us in church start off, with a zeal, excited about the things of Christ. Then as we reach a certain point in our Christian walk with respect to our knowledge of the faith and particularly Christ, we fizzle out, become lukewarm in our pursuit of the things of Christ and Christ himself. We might not say it outwardly, but there comes a point when some of us reason inwardly, okay, I know enough 
about my faith. It's time to pursue other interests. I don't need to be in church or among other Christians on any consistent basis. I already know this stuff. I know I'm good. And so with that mindset, they actually fall backwards in their growth, not forwards. They grow apart from God, not closer to him. They go off into the world and become primarily focused on their human achievements and earthly experiences which are untethered from their faith. But brothers and sisters, let me ask you, what does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and be separated from an intimate knowledge of the one who rescued you and who continues to be good to you and the one who sets your path? Now contrast that mindset with the mindset, the prerequisite mindset of the one who wrote what we have before us, the Apostle Paul, who wrote 48% of the New Testament. He gave it all up. Christ got a hold of him on the road to Damascus and everything changed. He no longer wanted to be the most religious man on the block. He no longer wanted to be the most learned man around the most esteemed, he wanted to know Christ, to be found in him, to know the power of his resurrection. And with all the knowledge of Christ he had already obtained, all that he had experienced, he was even taken up to the third heaven where he heard things that could not be told. And after all that, here he is exclaiming, not that I have already obtained this, Oh, I'm already perfect. Beloved, I submit to you that this is the prerequisite mindset we must have. For it is only when we have such a mindset, grounded in proper doctrinal understanding of who we are, sinners saved by grace, what we are, still in the process of knowing and growing whose we are, Christ, and for what purpose we are, to know him as a bride knows her husband and should aspire to do so perfectly. It is only when we are oriented this way as Paul was that we can properly align ourselves with the purposes and work that God had intended for us. It is only then that we can truly set the goal that matches the very reason for why we were created, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let's look at how Paul does this under our second heading, setting and pursuing the goal. Paul, after noting his lack of complete knowledge concerning Christ and the power of his resurrection, says, I press on to make it my own. Based on what he knows, Paul has established a goal. It's the same one that we should have. And for the exact same reasons, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. The word press here literally means pursue, and it signifies exertion of great, great effort, great exertion, pushing with all you have. I'm reminded of the 2012 track and field season of my son. That was the height of, of his time in track and field in high school. I remember we were at the regional finals, and he had worked hard all season, 
Now, if you knew my son, you know that he wasn't the most focused person on the world, in the world. But when you put him on that oval track, something changed in him. And so we put him in that thing, and he did well all season. But there was this one kid that was in Palm Beach. We were in Broward County that Dean could not beat. His name was Ricky. And so now in regionals, you all meet from all these different areas. So they met, and Dean's event was the 400-meter race, Dean Jr., okay? So the race started, and Dean had progressively gotten better and better and better. So the race started, and off they were out of the starting blocks. And at the, Dean was in the fourth lane, and Ricky was in the fifth lane, which means that Ricky was ahead of him a little bit in the stagger to begin with. Dean caught him by the time they got to the first, the 300, the first 100-meter mark. But Ricky would not let Dean pass him. And literally for 300 meters, both of these young men were running right next to each other, not looking at each other, but running as hard as they could all the way. And they came down to the 100-meter mark, and both were, you could see the strain on their face. They would not let the other person, would not let the other person pass them. You could see the exertion. They had their eyes on the prize, the goal, the finish line. And they ran stride by stride. I tell you, it was something to behold, to see how much exertion they were putting forth trying to beat each other. The end of the story is my son won by one one hundredth of a second in that race. But the thing that I want you to see there is the exertion that he put forth, the hard work, everything that he did. He was not perfect. He could not beat Ricky. In fact, the next week at the state championship, Ricky ran a second faster than his best time ever and beat Dean, who finished third at the state championship behind another guy from up north who bust both of their behinds. So. <laughs> but as only as we are oriented that way, that, that effort we have to put forward. And so why does Paul have this great desire to put forth this type of effort? Again, it's based on that which he knows. He says, because Christ has made me his own. He recognized that Christ has actually laid hold of him while he was still a sinner. You see, Romans 5 tells us, for while we were still weak, that means unable to do anything about our estate, and able to do anything, lost, without hope, hopelessly divided from God, justly dividing his, deserving his wrath. While we were still in that position at the right time, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8 said, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul understood what Christ had done. He understood the gravity of his situation. So brothers and sisters, do not be also under the mistaken impression that you chose God. God laid hold of you as we see. And why? Romans 29 tells us, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. God chose you and I, like he did Paul, to make us like Jesus Christ. So the purpose of, for which God saved us is also the purpose for which we are to live. We're not to live to enjoy life just to be enjoying life. We are to live for the purpose to which Christ died for us and called us and made us his own. And it's in light of that fact that I say to you, 
that it might be a good idea to ask yourself if any decision you're about to make is ultimately going to move you down the path of being more and more conformed to the image of Christ, or is it going to drive you in another direction? Paul, having set his goal and having wholeheartedly set off on on his pursuit, continues to speak of his own pursuit in verses 13 and 14. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. He says, but one thing I do. Now, it's interesting that I do is not in the Greek text because basically the way it's structured, it's immediacy. It's a one-time single-minded focus that is trying to communicate. So it's one thing and then goes right into it, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He again proclaims that he has not arrived in his knowledge of Christ, nor has he arrived experientially in the power of Christ's resurrection. He's already saved but not yet, not fully. And so with a singleness of purpose, he endeavors to forget those things which were behind him, the past, the good, the things that he had achieved, the bad, and instead he chooses to strain forward to the attainment of his goal. The word strain here, like press, again signifies tremendous exertion. There is no picture of, this is a picture rather purposeful mental focus intent at work there is no let go and let God there is a resting in Christ but it is not passive and unfocused state of being so Dean how do I practically act on what I've heard so far people tell us to be spiritual to follow Christ to hold on how do we do it God has given us the means of grace by which we are to exercise and become molded into the image of our Lord. We've been given prayer. We've been given his word, the scriptures. Give yourself a commitment to reading scripture. And this could include coming up with a good Bible reading plan and sticking to it. Maybe obtaining a Bible reading discussion partner. Reading some good theological books. Check out John Kwasney's blogs and what not to read. Attend Sunday school. Family worship. And what we're doing right now. What God has ordained for us to be doing right now. Corporate worship. Church attendance. Communion. Listen to Hebrews 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. A key word that comes to mind as we're talking about this is discipline. Again, we're reminded that Paul in this passage is using the imagery of an athlete. An athlete has to be well-disciplined if they hope to achieve the thing they aspire to. Right now, one of the saddest things I can think of as it pertains to the current Olympics is what happened to 100-meter sprinter Shikari Richardson. Shikari rose to national prominence 
when she won the 100 meter finals during the, the United States Olympic trials, particularly so because at the time she ran the fastest time in the world. After she spoke of years of dedication and, and training, years of dealing with things most people had no clue about, then she spoke of a recent tragedy that occurred right before the start of the Olympic trials. She found out that her biological mother had died. Sadly, according to Shikari, she chose to, to smoke marijuana as a way to cope with the grief associated with that experience, even though she was perfectly aware that the penalty for being with that drug in her system was an automatic disqualification of her performance and a definite suspension from the sport. And sure enough, she was drug tested during the trials and was found to have marijuana in her system. She was subsequently suspended from competition retroactively. So from the date that preceded the Olympic trials, which meant that all her results from the trials were erased, which then meant that she was disqualified from competing in the Olympics. All those years and months of training, all the people in this nation, me included, who now had a track star they were looking forward to seeing compete against the last two Olympic champions, both from the island of Jamaica, both of whom now have the two fastest times in the world this year. All hopes dashed as a consequence of her disqualification. Listen, I understand that grace needs to be extended to this young lady. I understand that the loss she suffered is one of the most significant ones that anyone could suffer. But let me ask you this. What do you think her mother, if she was clothed with godly reasoning, would have wanted her daughter to do? I submit to you it would have been for her to keep her eye on the prize, remain disciplined in her pursuit, and seek the type of aid, whether it was counseling, coach's advice, comfort from her teammates, anything that would have enabled her to press on in a disciplined manner toward the goal she had before her. The gravity of her situation did not escape my awareness and empathy, but that's how life is. Paul is not saying here, just forget the little things. He knows that in this life, you'll have tribulation. He knows we'll have difficulty, that we'll be tempted with big things, good things, and bad things. But listen to the words Paul would say to those in those situations. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Beloved, be assured we can rest in the knowledge that it is when we are in pursuit of Christ, when our hearts are set on knowing him, experiencing the power of resurrection, that our plans are established. Listen to Proverbs 4, 25 and 26. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the left or to the right. Solomon says, don't look to your left or your right. Here, Paul says, don't look back. 
That's another thing we know and understand with Paul in terms of when he speaks of an athlete. They cannot afford to look back. Let me ask you, have you ever paid attention to those track athletes that look back? Have you ever noticed how often they lose? Have you, listen, have you, all of you, put the things that were done in the past that may have bothered you, hindered you, beset you? Have you put those things behind you? Here's what Paul told the Corinthians concerning their past lives. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Some of you aborted children and you know it's wrong. Some of you abused your spouse and you know it's wrong. Some of you did all kinds of things and you know it's wrong. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Pick up yourself. Dust off yourself. Get back in the race. The righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up, Proverbs tells us. Oh, but Dean, you just don't know what I've done. God can never forgive me. I can't forgive myself. Brothers and sisters, oh, yes, he can. And oh, yes, he will. Please hear me. What was done was done. Whatever it is that you might have done in the past, whatever it is you achieved in the world in a great way is in the past. We are to look forward. That's why we pray, give us this day our daily bread. We don't pray, give us yesterday some more from yesterday. We don't pray, give us that day. We pray, give us this day. Who told us how to pray that? Our Lord. God sovereignly allowed the things that happened in your past to happen, ultimately for his purpose and according to the counsel of his own will. And through it all, through it all, you're still here. Through whatever you suffered, through whatever you experienced, through whatever was in the back, you are still here. So it's time to move on to a greater focus. Christ and him crucified. Your service to him for his glory and for the betterment and witness to those in your sphere of influence. And how should you go about this? Where should you place your gaze, you ask me? You've already been hearing it throughout this sermon. Here in verse 14, Paul describes it as the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is to say, one day you will experientially meet Christ face to face and you will know as you are known. You will become home to the celestial city and though there, the greatest thing you will want to see, the greatest thing you will experience will not be mansions, will not be people, will not be relatives, will not be angels. It will be Christ. It will be Christ. And in our minds, we're oh, you know what? Some, some, some of us need to admit it. We're like, you know what? It's not that exciting to just meet Christ. Oh, you just don't know. We have no clue. And so this pursuit should shape our decision-making, our daily activities, a review of Paul's life shows that's exactly what happened. And oh, that we would be like Paul. 
that we were resolved to count the things that we gained as nothing and instead develop a resolve to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, that our gaze would be heavenward, that we would commit ourselves to the things of God that he has provided for us to grow in this manner. And no, it is not being too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Those whose eyes are heavenward, they're the most use on earth. So let me quickly close with our third and final heading, Paul's appeal and acknowledgement. When we look at verse 15 and 16, we see that not only did Paul live out what we just read, but he exhorted others to do the same. He says, let those of us who are mature, brothers and sisters, that is, if you aspire to grow in Christ, if you aspire to be mature in Christ, if you aspire to be where God wants you to be, to use you for his glory, then you are supposed to adopt this way of thinking, this way of operating, this focus, this singular focus, which will branch out into every single part of your life. And if in anything you think otherwise, God would also reveal this to you. He is saying, he's showing patience here. He's saying, you know what? If you don't believe, if you don't have the same opinion, if you don't grab hold of that which I'm saying here, God himself, I am confident that God himself will show you those things. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. That is the things that God has given you. The place that you are. Hold fast to that. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to the knowledge that you have. Look forward to growing in those things. Let me close by asking you this. Based on everything that you heard me say this morning, are you content in the knowledge you have concerning your Savior? Or like Paul, do you understand that your knowledge of Christ is incomplete, that you are on your way to heaven, but you're not fully there yet, that God has created you for a purpose and you are to grab hold of that purpose, knowing Christ? Like Paul, is your goal therefore to know him as he is revealed in scriptures, the scripture, and to experience the power of his resurrection? Or are you content with just doing the church thing, whatever that might mean or be to you? Is knowing Christ your greatest pursuit or is attending church just your dearest and nearest tradition? If you don't know Christ, you are in the most desperate of ways, but his grace is calling you calling you to open your heart, to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that he is who God says he is, that he died for you. But brothers and sisters, for those of us who are called by his name, let us press on, singular of mind and heart, to glorify our God, all to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for revealing that which was in the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul, that which you have graced him with. And we pray that you would do the same for us, for we, can, we confess that our hearts and our minds are not always concerned with the things of God, with your things. Our hearts and our minds are not concerned about knowing Christ but about the things in this world that we can grab hold of. 
You have given us those things for our pleasure and our enjoyment, but would you make it so that those things don't become our God? We know that our hearts are idle factories, so we ask that you would grab hold of our wills. We give you our wills and ask you to mold us and shape us in accordance with your will. Make us, move us, grab hold of us and move us towards having a zeal for our risen Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.